Okay, and here are our birthdays for today. We have just two. Alice N. Gratis of Mason City and William Walter of Perry. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Thank you, Deanna. <clears throat> From Ankeny, Dennis Fox, Dennis Allen Polson Fox, a.k.a. Dennis A.P. Fox. Dennis was born on May 11, 1952, to Mary Louise McNair Fox and Jackie Burdell Fox in Centerville, Iowa. He died November 25, 2023, at Sunnyview Care Center in Ankeny of dementia and related illnesses. Dennis received a B.S. in physics at Coe College, Cedar Rapids, in 1974, M.S. in physics from University of Iowa in 1977, a Master of Divinity from University of Dubuque in 1984, and um, M.A. in Hebrew Bible from the University of Iowa in 2000. Dennis served as student pastor in South Wayne and Woodford United Methodist Churches in Wisconsin in 1980 and 81, and at Wesley UMC 1982-84 in East Dubuque, Iowa. He served as interim pastor in Kiyosakwa in 1985. Dennis was appointed to serve at Calamus and Grand Mound UM Churches 1985-87. Dennis and Julie Polson were married on April 26, 1987. Dennis was appointed to serve Asbury United Methodist in Cedar Rapids from 1995 to 98 and from 2004 to 2007. Dennis served as associate pastor at Washington UMC, Washington, Iowa. He taught world religions at Iowa Wesleyan and ESL at Kirkwood 2005 through 2007. From 1999 to 2019, Dennis worked as a Unix Systems Administrator at Internet Navigator, Rockwell Collins, John Deere, Pioneer slash DuPont slash Corteva. Dennis loved working on computers, learning and working in modern and ancient languages, writing, preaching, problem solving, sarcasm, reading, studying, praying, and teaching. He had a deep faith in God and Christ and an endless curiosity about various religions and holy texts. He was a lifelong learner whose heart was filled with passion for social justice. He delighted in helping Iowans learn about Islam, and he corrected much in misinformation in the field of religion. Dennis loved photography, woodworking, playing guitar and bass, motorcycles, and his pickup trucks. Dennis is survived by his wife, Julia, Julie, E.F. Polson of Ankeny, Isaac, his son of St. Louis, Missouri, and James, his son of Ankeny, Iowa. His brother, Dale, married to Carolyn Fox of North Carolina, and his aunt, Carol Fox O'Neill, and other family. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brother, Dan Fox of Virginia. Contributions in honor of Dennis may be given to Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice, uh, formerly J-F-O-N, so Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice, sent to Slinginger Schroeder Funeral Home, 119 West Lincoln Way, P 
Post Office Box 108, Jefferson, Iowa, 50129. The family is hosting a celebration of life to be held in Des Moines at First United Methodist Church, 1001 Pleasant, Des Moines, Iowa, on Monday, December 4th at 1.30 p.m. Lunch follows. RSVP for lunch to Julia E.F. Polson, P-O-U-L-S-E-N, at gmail.com. That is from the Slinger Schrader Memorial Home and Cremation Care in Jefferson. Shirley Burdock, age 92, passed away peacefully in Des Moines on Sunday, November 26. Shirley was born April 27, 1931, in Detroit, Michigan, then moved to Des Moines in December 1931. She graduated from St. Joseph Academy in June of 1949, and she married Richard Burdock on August 31, 1952. The couple lived in Des Moines and Mitchellville, Iowa, where they raised three children and cared for five foster children. When she was not caring for her children, Shirley was active in the PTA, Girl Scouts, and the Fairground Little League. She also worked at Farm Bureau, Plum Supply, and later became a full-time homemaker. Shirley is survived by her son Randy, who is married to Sue Burdock, and seven grandchildren, uh, Ryan, Skyler, Tony Marie, Nick, Katie, Ashley, and Eric, and great-grandchildren Ellie, Ryder, Hank, Eloise, Roy, Renee Marie, and Ollivander. She was preceded in death by her parents, William and Rosalie Bennett, all of her grandparents, a daughter, Renee, and uh, grandchildren, Amy, Lori, and Richard Lee, who tragically passed away in an airplane accident in July of 1981. Also a great-granddaughter, Evelyn Burdock, and a son, Mark. From Murray, Osceola, Donovan Harrison, son of Frank Donald Harrison and Beulah Ruth Hayden Harrison, was born February 27, 1948, in St. Charles, Iowa, and passed from this life Sunday, November 19, 2023, at 75 years of age. Donovan received his education at East Union High School, graduating in 1966. Donovan worked as an operating engineer and was a member of the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE Local Union Number 234, since August 6, 26, 1967, until his retirement during the summer of 2004. He remained a loyal member of IUOE 234 until his passing. Those relatives who preceded Donovan in death were his father, mother, brother, uh, Lloyd Harrison, son, Garrett Harrison, special friend Darla Mae Jenks, sister-in-law Eva Harrison, brother-in-law Mike Kalimpis, and nephew Keith Harrison. Donovan leaves to cherish his memory. Daughter Crystal, married to David Hills of West Des Moines. Daughter Angela, married to Brian McDowell of Peru, Iowa. Brother Ronald, married to Shelley Harrison of Siren, Wisconsin. Sister Bonnie Kalimpis of Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Grandchildren Danielle, Devon, Shian, Spring, Autumn, uh, and eight great-grandchildren, as well as other relatives and many friends. A gathering to celebrate his life will be held at Kale Funeral Home Saturday, December 2nd, 2023, from 2 to 4 p.m. Thank you, Judith. 
All right, from page four in the Nation World Extra, Rosalind Carter tributes laud her remarkable legacy. This is from Bill Barrow of Associated Press, out of America's Georgia. Hundreds turned out to salute Rosalind Carter on Monday with the former U.S. First Lady and Global Humanitarian's final journey from her rural hometown to the Jimmy Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta as her family began three days of memorials following her death at the age of 96. The former president, who is 99 and has spent the past 10 months in home hospice care, plans to attend a memorial church service Tuesday in Atlanta for his partner of more than 77 years. The Carter Center confirmed this. Rosalind Carter died November 19th. The tributes started Monday morning as Rosalind Carter's casket traveled by motorcade through the Carter's native Sumter County, where well-wishers gathered along the route in their tiny hometown of Plains and attended a wreath-laying ceremony at the college from which she graduated in 1946. Lyndia Brown drove to the ceremony at Georgia Southwestern State University from nearby Albany, saying she wanted to salute a remarkable woman who attended local cancer benefits and fought for rural health services. Brown said they were always real hometown people. We don't get presidents and first ladies like that anymore, people who have true hometown roots and understand what it's like to grow corn and peanuts and whatever else and to struggle over health care. During the stop at Rosalind Carter's alma mater, her four children, Jack, Chip, Jeff, and Amy, watched as wreaths of white flowers were placed beside a statue of their mother on the campus where she founded the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving to advocate for millions of unpaid caregivers in American households. Generations of the Carter family, including the former First Lady's grandchildren and great-grandchildren, accompanied the hearse to Atlanta, where members of the public paid respects Monday evening as she lay in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. Two funerals set for Tuesday in Atlanta and Wednesday in Plains are for invited guests. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden lead the dignitaries expected uh, to attend the Atlanta service. Rosalind Carter's burial Wednesday in Plains is private. The schedule, a product of detailed planning that involved the former first couple, reflects the range of Rosalind Carter's interests and impact. That includes her advocacy for better mental health treatment and the elevation of caregiving, her role as Jimmy Carter's closest advisor, and her status as matriarch of Plains and Maranatha Baptist Church, where she and the former president served in various roles after leaving the White House in 1981. Kim Fuller, the Carter's niece, while teaching a Bible lesson Sunday at Maranatha, said, All over the world, people are celebrating her life. And, of course, we're coming into a week now when we're going to celebrate even more. Some well-wishers began honoring Rosalind Carter soon after her death, including an uptick in visitors to the Carter Presidential Center campus. Mental health is more openly talked about because of Rosalind Carter's work to reduce the stigma attached to the conditions, said Brendan Green, a high school guidance counselor who came from Chicago. She was a pioneer in that field, he said. What a great legacy. Elizabeth Loudig, a registered nurse from Dallas, said she drove 12 hours to be in Georgia this week, starting with the wreath-laying ceremony in Americas. She said Rosalind Carter's emphasis on mental health 
and caregivers was especially inspiring to her as a nurse. She said she just quietly went about the business of trying to make the world a better place. You know, she was not a showy or extravagant first lady, but she was humble, you know, kind, hardworking, and got things done for people because she cared about people. After the motorcade arrived in Atlanta, the family joined staff at the Carter Presidential Center for a short private service. The campus near downtown Atlanta includes the library and museum and the Carter Center. The former first couple founded the center in 1982 to champion democracy, mediate international conflicts, and fight disease in the developing world. Their work around the world redefined what former White House occupants can do after ceding political power. Judith. And from page three, Giving Tuesday could have big impact. Nonprofits say donations so far in 2023 are down compared to past years. This story by Thalia Beatty, released from the Associated Press. Supporting nonprofits on Giving Tuesday this year could have a bigger impact than usual. Why? Because nonprofits and industry groups say donations so far are down compared with previous years. Many organizations will look to make up the difference on Giving Tuesday, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, that is today, which started as a hashtag in 2012 and has grown into one of the biggest fundraising dates on the calendar. Many nonprofits will run matching campaigns, meaning a supporter has pledged to double or sometimes triple the donation of other smaller donors. Combine that boost with businesses that match employee donations, and it can really add up, said Tim Prees, who runs a small production studio in the Bay Area, matching employee gifts to nonprofits of up to $1,000. Prees said, it's just kind of exponential, uh, which makes me happy in my heart that a little bit goes a much longer way, especially on that day. A large amount of charitable giving happens at the end of the calendar year, coinciding with the holidays and the time when some donors will consider the tax benefits of giving. Large organizations offering donor-advised funds, which are financial vehicles for charitable giving, host webinars and put out reports to encourage their account holders to consider where and how much they want to give while they are gathered with their families before Thanksgiving, said Amy Pirazzolo, head of donor engagement at Fidelity Charitable. Her organization forecasts grants from their donors will increase compared to last year, saying $9 billion has been granted as of the end of October before the end of the year bump, which can account for 30% of the total. Last year, some $11.2 billion was granted from its DAF accounts. Uh, Pirozolo said, we are super, super optimistic about what the year-end is going to look like. The rosy forecast for end-of-year giving from organizations like Fidelity Charitable contrasts with warnings from organizations like the National Council of Nonprofits, which said in an August report that many organizations anticipate falling support this year. That would follow the trend of charitable giving in 2022, which dropped for only the fourth time in 40 years. Perhaps more concerning for nonprofits, the Giving USA report found fewer people are donating at all, with less than half of Americans giving to charity in 2022, compared with more than two-thirds who gave in 2000. 
The trend, though, is different for affluent Americans whose charitable contributions have made up a larger and larger share of overall donations. The recent 2023 Bank of America study of philanthropy found households with a net worth of more than $1 million or annual income of more than $200,000 are still giving 19% more than before the pandemic. The bifurcated trends mean many organizations will target their wealthiest supporters, though the harsh reality is that even they may pull back on donations because of larger economic forces, like high interest rates, a dragging stock market, and persistent inflation. Other nonprofits, though, aim to rally support from the communities they seek to serve, and Giving Tuesday can help with that. Board member Natasha Andrews of Live, L-I-V-E, Live, Indiana, a nonprofit in Fort Wayne, which focuses on suicide prevention among young people, said they have been preparing for months for Giving Tuesday and will launch social media campaigns and reach out to former donors by email. She said, we like to really bring out a lot of the statistics at that time, a lot of the information to really, truly educate people on why it is important to give their money to our organizations. But they also run regular events throughout the year to raise their profile as a place where teenagers can seek help and to spread awareness of emergency resources, she said. Sierra Coleman, who works for a large philanthropic Foundation approached the fundraising problem from the angle of a donor when she started a giving circle in New Orleans to support women and girls in her city. Her professional experience has taught her that too often decision makers in philanthropy, I'm sorry, overlooked her community. Coleman said, I gathered nine of my friends at the time and just had this conversation about reshaping philanthropy because I was frustrated with the roles being dominated with white men. Since it was founded in 2021, the Giving Circle, uh, in its G-E-A-U-X, Go Girl Giving, has donated $50,000 to 30 organizations in grants that range from $1,000 to $5,000. She and the other members also volunteer, serving as mentors and open their networks to their grantees and the people those organizations serve, which she seeks as embodying the original Greek meaning of the word philanthropy, that is, the love of humanity, which never was, I think, intended to mean solely those who write a large check. Um, but those who really have a love for people and tap into all of their resources in order to exude that love for others, Coleman said. Ultimately, many donors are motivated to give by deeply personal connections to causes or issues or because someone they know asks them. When asked how he decides where to give, Jacob Qualls, A business consultant in Chicago grabbed a manila envelope on his desk and sifted through his giving receipts from the past year. Many of his donations have supported education in some way, though he has also supported disaster relief and medical research. Thank you, Judith. Okay, on that same page, Biden says his policies have helped lower inflation. Opens meeting of new council by announcing actions on supply chain. This is from Josh Boak of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. President Joe Biden on Monday opened the first meeting of his Supply Chain Resilience Council by warning companies against price gouging and saying his administration was working to lower costs for U.S. families. Biden said 
We know that prices are still too high for too many things, that times are still too tough for too many families, but we've made progress. The president has blamed inflation on issues such as supply chains and Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, while GOP lawmakers say the run-up in prices was triggered by the $1.9 trillion in coronavirus relief that Democrat Biden signed into law in 2021. Biden used the council meeting to announce 30 actions to improve access to medicine and needed economic data, as well as other programs tied to the production and shipment of goods. He said he was tackling junk fees, which are hidden charges that companies seek sneak into bills just because they can and customers have no alternative. The council follows an earlier task force that was meant to address the supply chain problems that partially fueled higher inflation in 2021 as the United States recovered from the coronavirus pandemic. Inflation remains a sore point for Biden's approval ratings ahead of next year's presidential election. After the annualized increase in the Consumer Price Index peaked at 9.1 percent in June of 2022, inflation has eased to a moderate 3.2 percent. The slowdown was not so far improved, has not so far improved U.S. adults' feelings about the economy. Biden said GOP policies would leave supply chains vulnerable, claiming that Republicans want to cut investments that he has made in infrastructure and advanced manufacturing. The president also said companies that are taking advantage of inflation to boost profits are price gouging. Among the 30 new actions, Biden will use the Defense Production Act to have the Health and Human Services Department invest in the domestic manufacturing of needed medicines that are deemed crucial for national security. The cabinet agency has identified $35 million to invest in the production of materials for injectable medicines. The federal government will also improve its ability to monitor supply chains through the sharing of data among agencies. The Commerce Department has developed new tools to assess risks to the supply chain and has partnered with the Energy Department on the supply of renewable energy resources Shipping companies are beginning to use new data resources from the Transportation Department on freight logistics. The supply chain group is co-chaired by Lyle Brainerd, the White House National Economic Council Director, and Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor. Other members include heads of cabinet departments, the U.S. Trade Representative, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and the directors of National Intelligence, the Office of Management and Budget, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Haley draws the largest crowd of her campaign. The story released by the Associated Press by Meg Kennard from Bluffton, South Carolina. Nikki Haley argued Monday, former President Donald Trump causes too much chaos to be successful in a second White House term, reiterating her argument about the GOP frontrunner at a large town hall in her home state of South Carolina. The former governor and United Nations ambassador drew the largest crowd of her primary campaign so far as she tries to close the gap with Trump just weeks before the Iowa caucuses kick off the Republican nominating calendar. Haley invoked her former boss, saying, as she has before, that she believes Trump was, 
quote, the right president at the right time, end quote, but that the time is now right for a new generation of U.S. leadership. She went on to say, I agree with a lot of his policies, but the truth is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. We have too much division in this country and too many threats around the world to be sitting in chaos once again. About 2,500 people attended the event at a satellite campus of the University of South Carolina along the state's southern coast. Half that number watched her event from video screens outside the venue after it reached capacity. Hours ahead of Monday's start time, the line for attendees wrapped around the venue, which the campaign said had to be changed from its original location due to demand. Her staff casts her campaign as being on a rising trajectory, pointing to growing crowds in recent donors looking for a Trump alternative. Haley remains among a pack of candidates competing for a distant second place with Trump, who has led the GOP field since kicking off his third presidential campaign last year. Later this week, Haley will head back to New Hampshire, where she has stumped heavily. Former biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy has more than a dozen events scheduled this week in Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis campaigns across South Carolina on Friday. She also often notes her ousting of a 30-year state incumbent in the South Carolina House, then beating three initially better-known candidates to become the first woman to serve as South Carolina governor. The question of how Haley could close the gap with Trump was on the minds of some who gathered to hear her on Monday. Vincent Francangeli, who lives on Hilton Head Island, said he is leaning toward supporting Haley, but is taking a wait-and-see approach as the election's first votes draw closer, noting that Trump is still on his list of candidates whom he might support. Francesca Langelli said the world was a safer place when Trump was in office, but Trump's got a lot of baggage, and you've got to ask yourself, is Trump really electable? I don't know, he said. Haley hit the usual points of her campaign speech on Monday, drawing applause and cheers following calls to term-limit members of Congress, subject politicians to mental com competency tests, and end trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans with fentanyl, she said. Uh, she invoked her former boss, saying, as she has before, that she believes Trump was the right president at the right time. Um, he said, I, she said, I, I agree with a lot of his policies, but the truth is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Um, that appears to have been uh, said earlier in this article as well. On Monday, Haley riffed on Trump's recent appearance in her home state at Saturday's football rivalry matchup between the University of South Carolina and her alma mater, Clemson University. Trump was a guest of Governor Henry McMaster, Haley's successor, and an alumnus of South Carolina, which lost to Clemson. Haley said, how did it work out for the Gamecocks having Trump show up? Not so lucky for the Gamecocks, just saying, go Tigers. Asked why he came out to see Haley, Francesca Angeli said he had been impressed by her performance in the GOP presidential debates, The Soul Woman on Stage. He said she did not come across weak, uh, referencing her debates. She came across to me like a powerhouse. She stood up to those guys. These guys are trying to beat her up. She kicked right back. I was impressed. Thank you, Judith. Okay, I'm going to just do a few brief things from the 50, 50 states here. Gulf Shores, Alabama. Hurricane Sally wiped out 
a 200-foot section of the Gulf State Park fishing pier on the Alabama coast in September of 2020, just as it was about to reopen after a $2.4 million rebuild that was prompted by an earlier storm. Now, the pier in Baldwin County has closed for construction again to repair the damage from Sally and should reopen by the end of the next summer, the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources said. Out of Wrangell, Alaska, authorities recovered the body of an 11-year-old Sunday evening from the debris of a landslide in southeast Alaska that tore down a wooded mountainside days earlier. Smashing into homes in a remote fishing village, the girl was the fourth person confirmed killed by the last Monday night's landslide. The girl's parents and her sister were discovered and confirmed dead in the initial days after the landslide. Out of Phoenix, Arizona, a man who shot at nearly a dozen Phoenix homes over several months to terrorize his ex-girlfriend and her extended family has received a 22-year prison sentence, said prosecutors. And out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, the University of Arkansas Food Bank has received a $50,000 donation, which will help feed those struggling with food insecurity for at least the next year, said the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And I think that brings us to a close. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Judith Linden and Deanna Snyder. It's been a pleasure to serve. How we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. Welcome back. Your new readers are Dale Finnegan and Doug Kretzinger. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And now here's Doug with our next article. Thank you, Dale. Treacherous tech requires a skeptical public 
is the first opinion on the USA Today, Empower Our Citizenry, Citizenry to Weed Out Deep Flakes. It's written by Nolan Higdon, who is a national judge for Project Censored and a frequent contributor to its yearly book, State of the Free Press. He is a lecturer at Merrill College and the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. In October, a viral video showed uh, model Bella Hadid, who is half Palestinian, apologizing for past remarks and expressing support for Israel. At the time, the Internet was being swarmed with videos of destroyed buildings and children crying in the rubble of Gaza. Journalists concluded that these Internet videos, as well as numerous others, were fabrications known as deep fakes. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a deepfake is an image or recording that has been convincingly altered and manipulated to misrepresent someone as doing or saying something that was not actually done or said. Deepfakes are so ubiquitous and convincing that the public needs to be equipped with critical media literacy skills to avoid being persuaded by these falsehoods. It is true that there is a long history of manipulating images. Photographers staged pictures during the Civil War. News media, such as Fox News, have altered images to lampoon opponents, and political operatives have introduced and altered images in a way to engender racist sentiment among voters. However, the advent of artificial intelligence coupled with smart devices and platforms such as Instagram, have enabled users to manipulate images with ease. AI and the Info Clips Many in the tech industry saw the threats posed by deepfakes years in advance. In 2016, technologist Aviv Ovidaya raised the alarm about an Info Clips. I think that's how it is, Info Clips. Quote, we were utterly screwed a year and a half ago and were even more screwed now, Ovadia hmm, told BuzzFeed News in 2018. And depending how far you look into the future, it just gets worse, he said. Less than a decade later, as advancements have, made, have been made in AI, Ovadia's warning has come to fruition. It is now possible to generate political advertisements with a click of a button, create lifelike renditions of deceased people as talking heads in documentaries, produce songs from deceased artists, and construct videos of prominent figures, such as former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi being drunk during a speech, or former President Barack Obama speaking comically on fake news. These deep fakes get more convincing day by day. The existence of these deep fakes should at least lead us to be skeptical, skeptical, if not outright suspicious of the veracity of any news-related videos until factually confirmed by trusted sources or corroborating evidence. When any party releases a video, whether it be Israel's footage over or after a hospital raid or Palestinian video showing the damage from Israeli attacks, audiences should be skeptical and demand transparently f sourced factual documentation. 
This occurred early after the October 7 Hamas attacks when President Joe Biden confirmed and later denied seeing photos of Hamas beheading babies. This claim is suspect at best, given that murdering babies is an old fake news trope trope used historically to justify anti-Semitism and provide support for multiple wars. A media literate public would not only want evidence to prove Biden had seen such photos, but also consider that any photo that does exist can be a deep fake. As the images have not been released, we may never know, but it needs to be a very real consideration for all future events and reporting. Deep fakes can ruin lives. The threats posed by deep fakes are just starting to be understood. Imagine if a video were posted of you saying something anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic, or sexist, and you did not say it. In this moment of so-called cancel culture, your livelihood could be threatened, even your physical safety. Imagine someone pairs your likeness with a sex doll and uses it to embarrass you, or worse, posts the fake images online. Imagine if a video online showed your child doing something embarrassing that they did not do and they were bullied at school as a result. Imagine if in every community across the nation, videos were created of police abusing a person of color and in the same location, videos were created of people of color attacking white communities. Given America's history of racism and violent clashes over racial and social justice, Such deep-faked videos could result in violent street altercations or widespread unrest. The public is largely ill-prepared to respond to these technological developments. That was made painfully obvious recently when actress Jamie Lee Curtis posted an image of Palestinian children fleeing from bombs in a post supporting Israel. The image depicted the violence thrust upon Palestinians by Israel the exact opposite of what Curtis claimed it showed. The incident demonstrated that Curtis, as well as the social media users who accepted her interpretation, lacked critical media literacy skills. A critical media literate user would have looked for corroborating evidence such as the accurately worded description that was readily available just below the image. For their part, Lawmakers have avoided efforts to curtail the creation and dissemination of these videos and have instead turned to the tech industry to manage the AI problem. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, whose daughters work in the tech industry, has asked lawmakers to slow down on AI legislation as he brings industry leaders to Congress to discuss the emerging technology. Similarly, the Federal Education a commission's slow process to potentially regulate political deepfakes reveals the government has largely avoided taking steps to seriously address the threats posed by AI. Meanwhile, lack of public trust in the establishment news media has prevented the press from being a leading voice on exposing deepfakes. We need better media literacy. Given the waning faith in government and media, The challenges posed by deepfakes necessitate a critical media literacy education where citizens learn journalistic skills, how to evaluate and analyze sources, separate fact from opinion, interrogate the production process, and investigate the politics of representation.
A critical approach to news encourages users to examine the power dynamics expressed in media and to be skeptical of how those power dynamics may result in the creation of false or duplicitous content such as deepfakes to manipulate users' behaviors and attitudes as a form of propaganda. Critical media literacy offers the best promise for addressing the threats posed by deepfakes because it empowers the citizenry rather than unaccountable governments or industries to determine the veracity of content for themselves. Yes, this will be a lot of work for the public, but we owe it to those living through the damage, destruction, death, and chaos in Gaza and Israel to get it right. Dale? The second opinion today is titled, Crosswalk Laws Need to Expand Beyond Pedestrians. And this opinion is written by Kara Hammon. Roxana, or Roxy Fudge, a longtime Iowa resident, was out for a bike ride with her husband in Tucson, Arizona, on March 30, 2022, when tragedy struck. The couple, both avid bikers with decades of bicycling experience, were riding their tandem bicycle on a trail, then used a crosswalk to navigate an intersection that they had been through many times over the years, when they were hit by a pickup. The driver failed to yield. Roxy, 77, a retired nurse and nursing educator, died as a result of her crash-related injuries after spending an excruciating two months in the hospital. But the driver walked away with zero convictions, despite the fatal crash. How is this possible? There is a glaring gap in crosswalk laws in the United States, but this loophole, loophole often is unknown. So little is being done to fix it. Crosswalk laws often give legal protections only to pedestrians, people on foot. Cyclists aren't protected, nor are people using wheelchairs, scooters, or other personal conveyances. We are continually seeing advancements in vehicle safety and roadway infrastructure to improve safety for all road users. Yet road traffic fatalities continue to rise. These fatalities often are among so-called vulnerable road users, including pedestrians and bicyclists. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is a simple and straightforward fix to the legal loophole in crosswalk laws that left Roxy so vulnerable. Change the word pedestrian to person. As an injury epidemiologist, I study crass crash prevention and outcomes, and I know that this simple change to crosswalk laws could make a big difference. The vast majority of state crosswalk laws specifically and only use the word pedestrian. For example, in Iowa, the pedestrian's right-of-way law states that, that the driver of a vehicle shall yield the right-of-way, slowing down or stopping if need be to so yield, to a pedestrian crossing the roadway within any marked crosswalk or within any unmarked crosswalk at an intersection. Most other state codes have similar language. Oregon is one state that gives bicyclists the right-of-way in crosswalks, but only if the bicyclists are riding no faster than, quote, ordinary walking speed. 
Minnesota law covers bicyclists in crosswalk, in crosswalks, and Wisconsin law covers cyclists as well as other conveyances, like personal delivery devices, electric scooters, and electric personal assistive mo mobility devices. Despite these few examples, the vast majority of bicyclists and other personal conveyance device users are not legally protected when riding through a crosswalk in the United States. Sure, crosswalks are primarily designed for pedestrians, but we must acknowledge that there are other humans using them. Bicycles, wheelchairs, scooters, and other devices move humans whose lives matter, and they also should be legally protected. A change in crosswalk laws might not have prevented the crash that killed Roxy, but it could provide the justice that people such as Roxy deserve. A change in crosswalk law language can also provide law enforcement with greater latitude to cite and convict drivers who fail to yield to crosswalk users. A small change in crosswalk law language can offer protections to bicyclists as well as wheelchair users and people on scooters. As we approach the 2024 state legislative sessions, let's advocate for this simple language change in crosswalk laws to help protect everyone. And again, the author of this opinion was Kara Hammond, who is an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. She is an injury epidemiologist who specialized in road traffic safety research for 15 years. Also, she is an avid bicyclist and a close friend of Roxy Fudge's son, Jeff. Doug? And sports time on the Des Moines Register. Randy Peterson wrote Fox TV analyst full of praise for Iowa State's Abu Sama. And here's how it reads. Spencer Tillman, the Fox Sports analyst with a resume that includes carrying footballs very well for Oklahoma and in the NFL, was impressed. Sitting in the press box near Tillman at Bill Snyder's family stadium, I sensed his enthusiasm each time Iowa State's Abu Sama touched the ball during Saturday night's 42-35 victory against Kansas State. Not until returning Sunday after the late-night game and re-watching what I'd seen in person did I actually know what he said about the Cyclones' true freshman. Especially grabbing my attention was what he threw out as Sama sprinted, as Sama sprinted into the end zone during his 60-yard romp through the snow, his third touchdown during his classic performance. This kid reminds me of Walter Payton, Tillman told the national viewing audience, and then he added, he's like a pinball wizard. Payton reached a rush for nearly 17,000 yards for the Chicago Bears. His nickname, Sweetness, certainly fit the former Southeast Polk superstar's performance in Iowa State's seventh win. Sama also scored on runs of 71 and 77 yards en route, to an amazing 276 rushing yards, the fourth best single-game performance in Cyclones history. And, of course, you know the top four are owned by former Heisman Trophy runner-up Troy Davis. Let's break down uh, Abu's long touchdown runs before going to the Register's Iowa State text group for their takes. 71 yards on the game's first play. Tied in, Steve O'Klutz, Klotz, Blocks a linebacker out of the way, and the rest is history. Sama up the middle, then runs away from the Kansas State defense with lightning-quick breakaway speed, even through snow. 77 yards on the first play of the second quarter. After another nice kick-out blocked by Klotz, K-L-O-T-Z, 
Sama showed instinct and balance again while hugging the right sideline during this sprint to the end zone. Sixty yards in the third quarter, by now, Kansas State's defense was so frustrated that cornerback Will Lee elected to push Sama rather than tackle him. That's how Sama became the Big 12's first player with two 70-yard touchdown runs in a game since the great Adrian Peterson of Oklahoma in 2005. Now for the text group. First text, what's Iowa State doing to keep Matt Campbell and his staff happy? His answer is, I don't understand why people automatically think contract extension after big victories. Is Campbell a very good coach? Absolutely. Have other schools offered him jobs since he became the Cyclones coach in 2016? Sure. But remember the 2019 story in a respected newspaper outside the state of Iowa that said Campbell told his players he was headed to Florida State. Well, Campbell is still here, and he'll be coaching Iowa State in the whichever bowl in a few weeks. Campbell's last contract rework was in February of 21, when he agreed to an eight-year contract through 2028 after leading the Cyclones to the Big 12 championship game and a New Year's Six Bowl victory against Oregon. He's making $4 million this season. The Cyclone Gridiron Club recently announced a donation of $300,000 in support of Iowa State football. 200000 uh, to the We Will Collective earmarked for uh, football and 100000 in support of Campbell, his coaches, players, and staff. Does he deserve more? Another extension wouldn't shock me. And here's a text that reads, Abu Sama looked like the Abu Sama that went nuts in the 2022 state high school championship game against Valley. I'll bet Southeast Polk coach Brad Zelenovich thought that too. If he watched... Saturday night's Cyclones game. Well, Sama rushed 24 times for 372 yards and six touchdowns in leading the Rams in that game. Against Kansas State, he carried 16 times for 276 yards and three touchdowns. His longer TD runs in the Class 5A state title game were of 73, 67, 65, and 63 yards. He averaged 15.5 yards a carry. Against Kansas State, Sama's larger runs were 77, 71, and 60 yards in route to averaging an eye-popping 17.2 yards a carry. And let's not forget this. The championship game was played in the UNI Dome on the fast turf. Saturday night's performance came in four quarters of snow. Saturday night's statistics were unbelievable. Zero Iowa State plays in the red zone. Just 35 plays to Kansas State's 102, and still win the game. How about 32 first downs for the Wildcats and 10 for Iowa State? No Cyclones scoring drive longer than four days of plays, and the Wildcats having the ball 25 more minutes. I'd say that's pretty off the charts. And here's the final one. Is Matt Campbell in demand against again after this season? And here's the answer. Demand is relative. Whose demand are we talking about? Fans or administrators of schools seeking high-quality football coaches? Houston is open, but that's not a CMC fit. Same with Mississippi State, Oregon State, Indiana, and Syracuse. Throw Texas A&M and Duke in that group, too. He said, thanks, but no thanks to interest from from Florida State and Michigan State. Interest is not to be confused with offers. 
I wrote soon after he became the Cyclones coach that the only college jobs I felt Campbell could seriously consider were Ohio State, Penn State, and Notre Dame. Has there been flirtation? Maybe, but there's a difference between flirting and dating. You'll see his name pop up. (coughs) Excuse me. High-end coaches' names are a clickbait. Social media will link him to multiple jobs during the next month or so. Often, the same alleged expert will have him going somewhere one day and another place another day. Potential candidates list, uh, candidate lists that you see online in the papers are for entertainment purposes only. Unfortunately, some people confuse them with actual lists belonging to athletic directors and the search firms that assist. Never have I seen ADs publicly release their top fives during the process. And this is routine stuff for Campbell. He's done a good job keeping it from be- being a distraction. Cyclone fans o- over the years have learned not to believe everything they read. When something starts with the words, sources are saying. Dale? Here's a little bit of what's on TV for sports viewing. Tonight, college basketball, men's college basketball at 5.30 p.m. on BTN. You can see Georgia Southern at Michigan State at 6 p.m., Mississippi State at Georgia Tech. On ESPN2 is LSU at Syracuse. On FS1 is Wagner at Providence. On SECN is Notre Dame at South Carolina. Then at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN, Miami at Kentucky. Missouri at Pittsburgh is on ESPNU. At 7.30 p.m. on BTN, you can catch Texas Southern at Purdue. At 8 p.m. on ESPN2, you can watch NC State at Mississippi. And on FS1, Southern U at Marquette. At 8.30 p.m. on ESPN is Clemson at Alabama. At 9 p.m., you can catch Akron at UNLV on MWN. And on PAC-12N, you can catch UC San Diego at Washington. And there is one NHL hockey game tonight at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN Plus or Hulu. You can watch Carolina at Philadelphia for hockey. That brings us to time for Dear Abby. The headline of her column today is Readers Detail Options for Tech-Averse Writer. The letter says, Dear Abby, this is in response to Love My Cheap Phone, a letter from August 28th. As a millennial who has worked in retail my whole adult life, I'm tired of the excuse that the older generation can't or won't use smartphones. Personal computers have been out for decades, and smartphones have been around more than 16 years. Like the automatic transmission, these things are designed to make our lives easier and should be embraced rather than shunned. I've had people cuss me out over not being able to access discounts due to not having a smartphone, going so far as to claim discrimination. The only person holding them back is themselves. And most of the time, smartphones are more intuitive than previously thought. They also all don't cost $1,000. Many basic-use smartphones can be bought for under $200, not to mention certain phone companies offer big discounts on a person's first smartphone with a new account. I don't feel bad for love, the letter writer. 
I suggest they get with the times because these devices aren't going away. Signed, Millennial in Oregon. Abby says, Dear Millennial, thank you for writing. After that letter appeared, I was inundated with comments from readers. Some of them agreed with you. Other readers understood Love's point of point and offered suggestions for transitioning more easily to a modern communication device. Here are a couple of those other letters. Dear Abby, I'm a senior with mobility issues and I couldn't live without my smartphone. It's not a toy. I use it to fill my prescriptions, schedule medical appointments, check test results, and communicate with my doctors. I do most of my shopping, conduct all of my banking online, call up ride sharing, make travel arrangements, and keep in touch with friends and family. I encourage love to open their mind a bit. And that was signed, online senior in California. Another letter said, Dear Abby, there is a government program, Lifeline, go to FCC.gov to find it, that provides a free smartphone and phone service to low-income people. If someone chooses not to have a smartphone for other reasons, that's their choice, but no one should go without one because they cannot afford it. Another letter says, Some states offer the Affordable Connectivity Program, which provides free phone service with smartphones and tablets to low-income individuals or those receiving Social Security. A tablet might be the better option to use for the kind of interactions the writer described. And a final letter from Mr. G in Syracuse, New York says, As a retired librarian who has helped many seniors with their technology, the idea of a $1,000 smartphone is akin to thinking that all cars are Rolls Royces. Many phones can be had for under $200 and some for less than $100. A number of cell phone and service providers cater to seniors trying to transition from their beloved flip phones. I urge love to visit their local library and see what advice they can get there. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier, you heard Deanna Snyder and Judith Linden. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings come from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.